0: Build this up, ground. Shakes to knock us down. Hello and welcome to an all new back half of the week episode of the Three Bid League podcast. Going to be a little bit shorter here, just one segment, but what a great segment it is going to be. As always, I'm Tyler and I am joined today by the VCU beat writer for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Zach Joaquin. Zach, thank you for joining me.
1: Tyler, what's up, man? Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, you've been doing a
0: great job over in your first year covering the Rams. If anyone is not reading your stuff, they need to be sure to go over to the Richmond Times-Dispatch website. Got you on the VCU beat, John O'Connor on Richmond. More A10 coverage than uh, any print publication is giving (laughs) in this day and age.
1: It's very cool to have beat writers. Um, and and Joc went to UR too, and so a ton of familiarity with that program. He's obviously a veteran reporter. I've got the chance to to learn a great deal from him. Um, and it's pretty cool to have two writers at the same paper covering two teams that are obviously fierce rivals. Um, in the same conference.
0: Yeah, and uh, a little bit of a theme for this year: three of the top four teams in this conference right now are the three with the consistent beat writer coverage. So. Uh... Maybe that's something for people to keep in mind in the cities of these other teams. Maybe we're helping out. Yeah. Between uh, you two. And then obviously David Jablonski over at the Dayton daily news, always, always, always willing to give a shout out to him. And I think we have to start with Dayton and the fact Mm -hmm. that with VCU, having been on by earlier this week, their last game that 49 to 47, I don't even want to call it a rock fight victory. Over Dayton because it wasn't an ugly game it was a game of fantastic defense on both ends but that puts vcu now eight wins in their last nine games just really the vaguest question i can ask why are the rams suddenly playing so well
1: after the george washington loss um and obviously losing tabana um and g-dub at home to start conference play was painful um but it was especially painful because of the manner in which they lost those games um 89 and 84 points at the seagull center that's obviously not what vcu has built its brand on and it's a fan base that takes pride in winning with defense um and ryan odom has talked about it sean Berstow has talked about it a good deal they had a team meeting um after that game and it's obviously cliche to point to a team meeting and say oh they had a heart-to-heart and everything turned around but there were obviously conversations had there that that, that took effect. Uh, and this team started to take a lot more pride in the defensive end. Jason Nelson, the sophomore guard who had a team-high 11 points against Dayton the other day, said just that after that game. Um, and then they went to Mason and won 54-50. And that, that game surely was, you could characterize as a rock fight. I know Ryan Odom used those words after that one. Um, So they, they grinded one out on the road, and I think that's what really got things started. Over, I was looking at the stats the other night, and it's wild. I mean, over the before up through that George Washington game, I think they were 140th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency, and they've since risen to 37th nationally on the whole season. And so, over these last nine games, they've been like the sixth best defensive team in the country. Um, and it's been an, an enormous turnaround. Michael Bell has been a big part of that. Obviously, a guy that I know Dayton fans know. Um, I think VCU and Dayton were the ones going head to head. For his recruitment going into the year, um, there, he's got a lot to develop on the offensive side of the ball, but man, can he defend he's the best true freshman defender that I've ever seen um, at this level just come into do a team and be able to contribute immediately in that regard he's a great rebounder as well. He's helped set the tone the other night against homes he was the guy that they were bringing on double teams a lot in that second half, um, and Christian Fermin and Toby Lawall's post defense. Um on Holmes was outstanding. I thought BCU just had a great collective plan to try and slow him down. And that's something I think over these last nine games that has really shined through for this coaching staff. For Ryan Odom and, and Matt Hart is the analytics guy that he has, former George Washington player, so he knows the A10 really well. Um they do a great job of identifying leading scorers' tendencies and how to keep them off their spots. And slow them down they did it against gibson jimerson when they played st louis they did a great job of it against jordan king when richmond came to the seagull center and they did a great job of it against holmes the other night um and so that's been a key component to it i think the coaching staff being able to identify ways to slow down leading scores and then this team has just taken a lot more pride in the defensive end and from a holistic standpoint it, it's tough not to talk about BCU and talk about the pieces that they were missing earlier in the year right i think it's nine games now only that they've played this year with Zeb Jackson, Sean Berstow and Joe Bamaseel all available. Um, Zeb Jackson missed some games with back spasms. I think everyone knows the story about Joe Bamaseel being one of those players who were fighting for eligibility amid the lawsuit and everything. And Sean Berstow has missed uh, about the first half of the year with a foot fracture and then a few games since with a rib injury. So he's been in and out. So they have not had the full complement of weapons for much of this year. And Jason Nelson and Sean Berstow both said it the other night after Dayton, they feel like they're the deepest team in the conference when they've got all of their pieces available. And Ryan Odom has really settled on a nine-man rotation, it seems like right now, with Fats Billups, uh, a really talented freshman, kind of being that odd man out. Um, so the roles are solidified, finally. I think that they've all gotten comfortable with the, the roles that they play in this group when everyone's fully healthy. And that took time, right? I think Ryan Odom, I think it was after the Dayton game that he said this, when you introduce new pieces who are so prominent, like Bear, Snow and Bamasil, there's a chance that things are going to get worse before they get better. And that's what happened a little bit, I think, with this VCU team, when you were trying to get those pieces uh, ingratiated into the lineup and get everyone's roles figured out as they took a dip before they really started to realize that ceiling. But I think all year... You know, we, we, I've been asking them, Dayton, to to non-conference play, do you guys feel like you have an unrealized ceiling, you know, when this group is fully healthy and they've been saying that they felt like that was the case all year and that they were searching for their identity. And I think they started to find their identity, particularly on the defensive end, and they started to get comfortable with everyone's roles. Jason Nelson coming off the bench was the only double-digit scorer in that win over Dayton, right? He had 11 points. Um, But all nine guys who were on the floor scored. And so it's it's really become a collective effort. And it's a team that has embraced the idea that you're getting a little less minutes maybe than you were earlier in the year when the group wasn't at full strength. But when you're in there, you can go 110% and not worry about mileage because Ryan Odom has the luxury of being able to rotate pieces so much. Um, and so it's a team that's gotten comfortable with its personnel amid a good deal of adversity that it's dealt with this year. And I think they're finally starting to push that ceiling of what they're capable of. Obviously, wins over Dayton, Loyola, and Richmond, albeit all at the Siegel Center. They still have to go to Robbins Center and to UD Arena, but that's got to give this group a lot of confidence that, that they can still compete for a conference title. I think they received top 25 votes this week, more than Richmond did, which is which is wild, given where this team was at at some points earlier in the year. The loss to Norfolk State in the non-conferences is, is killing them from a resume standpoint. I still don't think, I mean, maybe if you won out, from this point on, then you could have the the faintest of at-large discussions, but that's that's not going to happen. This isn't a team that's going to get an at-large bid at this point. That Norfolk State loss at the Siegel Center is is really pulling them down. They missed some opportunities in Orlando as well. Had Iowa State on the ropes, and in hindsight, that's an enormous missed opportunity because it's an Iowa State team that has played really well since then. They were up 15 in the first half on Ohio State without Sean Barristow and Joe Bamaseal. And so I think that gives you an idea of, of, of what this team is capable of. They feel like they can compete with anyone in the country when they're at full strength. Um, and they finally got those roles solidified and gotten comfortable with what this group looks like schematically with, with everyone back. And so it's easy to look back at the beginning of the year and feel like there were some missed opportunities because um, there were. But uh, it, it's also easy to make excuses for that because you were missing some key pieces. And so now that they finally got everyone I think they they feel like the sky's the limit. And I imagine that looking around the conference, nobody wants to play this team in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, and with all apologies to Zeb Jackson, who is a, a critical part of this team, uh, a guy who I think will probably end up on the A-10 all-defensive team this year. But when you talk about solidifying the rules, you start to look back at the bad stretches of the season that they had. Iowa State blowing that game and then blowing the Boise State game right after that. No Bearstone, no Bama still. Same for losing to Norfolk State. And then that terrible week they had to start conference play, getting blitzed by St. Bonaventure, and then not recording a single stop against George Washington the last seven minutes of the game, save for one travel on the Revolutionaries. They were fully healthy, and those were the two games where Ryan Odom decided that Michael Bell was going to be the odd man out of the rotation. And... To me, he comes back after playing four total minutes in those two games, plays 21 against George Mason. And ever since he hasn't been a prominent 20 plus minute a game guy, but he's been someone that they are calling on for some critical defensive minutes. And it's ever since they found the proper
1: balance between those three wings that this team has taken off. And he sets the tone defensively from a mentality standpoint a little bit too, right? I think everyone else around him sees a guy who's who's playing sparing minutes but who's embraced his role when he's on the floor right And I think that's filtered over into the culture of the rest of the team to see a guy kind of selflessly embrace that um and Bell has been great on you know you can stick him on so many different matchups because he's such a versatile player to spend some time on Keyshawn Hall right in that Mason game um he was the guy coming over for doubles on Holmes a lot of the time late in that Dayton game um he's he's a lockdown defender that you can put on the other team's best score and i'm glad you mentioned zeb's defensive vacuum and he's so quick and he's such a great perimeter defender he did a great job on king spent a lot of time and then max shulga um who you know the book on him coming into vcu and and early in the year was he's obviously a dynamic scorer can really shoot it he's been their leading scorer on the season but that he wasn't a great defender and he was the one chasing gibson jimerson around a lot of the time in that St. Louis game, it, he's really raised his levels defensively. And it's something that Ryan has said he knew Max was capable of because he saw it in in spurts at Utah State. But he had yet to kind of commit to the defensive end on a consistent basis. And man, has he done that in these last nine games? And like you said, Bell coming back, Ryan realizing that he needed to be on the floor for this team to to, to have the right mindset defensively was huge. Um it's impossible not to look back on some of those results that you pointed to early in the year and shake your head. Cause they have, they had that Boise state game as well. Um, but I, I think at this point, you know, all of that's behind them and they're looking forward because they're playing their best basketball of the season at the right time, you know, as, as, as March is coming up here. Um, I, I'm sure we're going to get into the games coming up. They have a tough back half of the schedule, right? You have to beat St. Louis on Friday. Um, St. Louis has Ryan pointed to the fact that sincere Parker um, I think he's played 13 games for them right now. And he was just kind of returning in his first few games um, when they first played them. And so he's become a bigger part of that team since, since they, these two last met. Um, And so St. Louis has improved, but I know Travis Ford is on the hot seat. It's obviously well below their standards to be at the bottom of the conference right now. VCU has to not only beat them, but, but should dispatch them pretty easily on Friday. And then man, you got a tough road trip what looks like a much tougher road trip after last night's results right with UMass taking down Richmond which obviously helped VCU but VCU has to go to Amherst on Tuesday and so that's going to be a tall task I know I don't know a whole lot about UMass what can you tell me about them I know they can really score it right I think they're like top three in the conference in points per game it doesn't seem like a, a great defensive team but they can certainly light up the scoreboard
0: yeah and it's a tough matchup for VCU as well because We've seen it throughout this conference play. Who has given the Rams trouble defensively at a time where basically no one else has Chad Venning. And now you're going up against yeah. the one other just brute low post can do basically anything against your centers, physically guy and Josh Cohen. And the biggest reason why UMass beat Richmond in the second half. Now, the second biggest reason is that was just Richmond's worst game of the year. And it was there one in every two months, oh, terrible turnovers, can't make a three, just really bad game. But Matt Cross and Josh Cohen in the second half were just way too physical for the Spiders. And we've seen that be a little bit of a problem for Furman and Wall this year.
1: I think Bigelow went out early in that game too. Do you know if he returned later down the stretch? For- yeah, he, he came back in. Okay, but they're, they're not deep. Right. I think that's that's part of the problem. It was how BCU tried to attack them when they came to the Seagull Center. Ryan rotated a little more than he has in that game. So I think he tried to beat Richmond with with BCU's depth and it worked to an extent. Right. I think Mooney's really only playing seven guys on a on a consistent basis um, with significant minutes. And so it's a Richmond team. I mean, I'm not being a homer here. There's a reason they were picked to finish 11th you know, in the conference, at the beginning of the year, I think everyone's kind of been waiting for the, sh- the other shoe to drop with them. Jordan King has been amazing. Um, Quinn is a matchup nightmare in the post and a really good passer out of the post. But I, I think that depth is, is Richmond's issue. Um, and that's come to bite him a little bit down the stretch here. Um, BCU took advantage of it when they played them. But yeah, to your point, Lawal and Fermine both sophomores, um, that's obviously the weak point experience wise on this roster and they're lanky mobile bigs. They're not back to the basket scorers. VCU does not run its offense ever through the post. When they get penetration, it's off the dribble drive game. It's Zeb Jackson using his quickness. It's Max Schulge, um using his ball handling and body positioning. And it's Sean Bairstow, who's been such a key piece to this team for that reason. He's so calm on the ball. And he's such a big guard that if you put any kind of perimeter defender on him, he's immediately trying to get into the paint and playing with his back to them. And a lot of VCU's offense has run through that when Berstow gets penetration and can get position in the post and then dump off to Firmino the wall or find a shooter outside to kick to. Um, That's what VCU's best offense has come through this year when Berstow has been the one initiating it. He brings the ball up the floor a lot. I mean, he's he's not a point guard, but he operates like a floor general for this team. Um, And they have to change up a lot offensively when he's not on the floor. He's also a great rebounder. And he was missing for that Bonaventure game, and that killed them. Um, He's been their leading rebounder in a lot of games this year. Really, really strong understanding of body positioning and boxing out. Ryan has said that that's been a strength of his going back to Utah State. And VCU got killed on the glass against Bonaventure, a team that really commits to the offensive glass. I think Charles Pride had 10 rebounds in that game. And so that's the one blip here over this nine-game stretch. Um, If you watch that game, that second half was beyond painful. VCU they've they led by 20 late in the first half um and then Bonaventure just chipped away with second chance opportunities and um and they've obviously got some shooters that VCU struggled to close to that killed them in the first matchup but yes it, it, you've got a true big who can play with their back to the basket when I walk when I walked into the Siegel Center that day for that first Bonaventure game so, and, and you come in the tunnel and the opposing team is is warming up on the side of the court that you walk in on I mean Chad Benning was the first thing that I noticed he's all of 6'10 255 um, and he gave VCU fits that game. Um, and so that's definitely the way to attack this team. If you have a true post big who can play with their back to the basket, then it's a tough matchup for, for, for me and the wall. But VCU has done a good job of adjusting to that as the season has gone on. I think they've gotten better at bringing those doubles and bringing that help to not allow true fives to establish post position on uh, those guys for me and the have done a much better jo- job of making guys catch further out uh, so that they can't get to their spots in the post to be able to play with their back to the basket. They did a great job of that against Holmes. And so I think BC was getting better. They know that that's their weak point defensively. And so they've done a good job of adjusting to it, but yeah, UMass and and, and Cohen on Tuesday is going to be a bear for them.
0: Yeah. So looking ahead here for the rest of this season, uh, I think we can say to this point, Max Shulga's has probably been the most valuable player offensively for the Rams, Zeb Jackson defensively, but It changes on a night-to-night basis, and this team is so deep that in the Dayton game, it was a Jason Nelson night. We've had a few games where Sean berstow has been critical. Joe Bamasil, like three times a season, is just going to carry you, and then three other times is going to be completely useless out there on the court. But looking ahead to the remainder of this schedule, these final seven games, and you mentioned the road trip coming up, but they closed the regular season at Richmond, home duquesne at dayton which is going to be brutal although the rams have tended to own the spiders and the flyers over the past few few years but going forward for vcu to get themselves in a position to win the tournament in brooklyn who is the most important guy to step up for vcu
1: that's a great question. Sean Barstow has to be healthy because this team has to adjust so much to how it runs its offense without Sean on the floor. Um, and so I think schematically he's probably the most important piece, but I'm gonna to point to Fermin on the wall. Um, two sophomores who, who've grown a ton over the year, but that's obviously from an experience standpoint, that's their weak spot. Um, and so, like you said, because they've struggled against true fives this year, I think the growth of those two guys is is vital. Um, And they've also got to finish easy shots, just like Duran Holmes, you know, helped BCU out with missing so many free throws in that game for me missed a lot of point blank opportunities around the basket that he's got to be able to finish. I think there are about four or five of them. Um, And so I think those two guys ability to finish around the basket continue to be a couple of the most efficient players in the A-10 because so many of their offensive opportunities come off of the dribble drive game from the guys on the perimeter and dump offs. Right. And so that's why they've been so efficient, because a lot of the time it's the it's wall and with dunks and putbacks. Right. And it's it's for me with that little push shot that he loves, either in the lane or, or on the baseline off of dump off passes um, from the guards. And so I think the continued growth of those two guys is what I'd point to. And the wall is playing heavy minutes. Um, He's played in key situations down the stretch in games. He was the one on the floor in that last possession for Dayton guarding homes and was able to contest. That old runner that he tried to, to, to tie that game up late there. Um, Lawall's athleticism is off the charts too. He's a guy that it it his buckets count for more than two points a lot of the time. They really do. Late in the Davidson game, when when BCU was struggling down there, um, Davidson led for much of that game, but Lawall had like an alley oop dunk on a lob from Bearstow with like eight, nine minutes, I think, to play in that game. And you could just feel like the energy kind of sapped. Out of that arena because the Davidson fans were going, damn, we don't we don't have a guy who can do that. And a lot of teams don't have a guy who can do that because the wall has those moments where he just jumps over everybody and you go and you know you're awed by the athleticism. And so he's been a spark energy and momentum-wise, with with buckets like that late in games that really feel like they count for more than two points in the grand scheme of things. Um and so I'd point to the continued growth and maturity of those two guys BCU has been trying to play through the wall a little bit in the post i've noticed they've been trying to get him back to the basket touches and maybe try and develop that side of his game a little more and man if they can get one of those two guys with any kind of consistent production out of the post then that's the component that this team has missed all year and if their post defense continues to improve against guys that that are bigger and stronger than them then it takes away one of BCU's glaring weaknesses and so i'd point to those two guys as the keys, we talked about Michael Bell defensively. That's huge, too, in setting the tone for this team. Um, Jason Nelson's uh, shooting consistency has been great all year. VCU fans have been crying for him to get more opportunities in the catch-and-shoot all year because it looks so good when he gets open looks. And so continue to get him open looks off the bench. He's been a great spark this year. Um, Bell's continued contributions defensively. And then those two sophomore bigs continuing to grow are, are all things that I'd point to. To augment the starting lineup. And, and like you said, Joe Bannister can beat you by himself on any given night. Um, he takes some bad shots, but he's that kind of scorer that you, you just kind of, you live with it, you know, because you want him to have that aggressive uh, attitude that, that gets him into a rhythm. Some um, And when he gets into a rhythm, then he can be the best player on the floor from an offensive standpoint.
0: Yeah. So I want to, I want to close this out by teeing you up with two questions here to look forward. So, At some point between March 14th and 17th, you'll be writing some level of, I want to say, I don't want to say season wrap up, but some sort of deep recap of what's gone wrong or gone right with VCU this year. So we'll go from the negative side first. If it's March 14th, they've just been bounced in the quarterfinals. And let's say they're not playing St. Bonaventure but just anyone else who might end up in that like five to 10 range has just knocked them out and this talented team has come to a a disappointing end to what is right now, a really promising season. What's the most likely way that things go wrong?
1: I mean, you'd certainly be harping on what could have been right. I mean, it's even at this point with them playing good basketball right now, it's, it's tough not to look back at, like we talked about the Norfolk state loss. They took Memphis to overtime at the Siegel Center, and and Zeb Jackson had an open layup to win that game late on. They really should have won that game. Um, Iowa State and Boise State, they had them both on the ropes. Even the opener against McNeese State, which ended up as an 11-point loss, was was a little closer than that, I think. And McNeese State, tip of the cap to Will Wade, um, is, is playing really good basketball right now. So that loss doesn't look that bad, but there's a few of those games that... If they get bounced in the quarters of the A-10 tournament, then you're going to be looking back on everything and saying what could have been possible if this team had had Bam Steel and Barristow available from the start. Obviously it's easy for every team in the country to, to look back and say, if we'd had these pieces for this game, then, then things could have been different. But I also think that there'll be an underlying positivity because of how much things have turned around in these last nine games. I mean, so long as they don't collapse down the stretch here, um, then I think you're still going to have some momentum going into Ryan Odom's second year because it's impossible not to look at all of the moving pieces that he had in the offseason, right? The timing of Mike Rhodes leaving and Ryan coming on so fast and having to throw together a roster where you had four returners, you know, and and having to hit the transfer portal hard and bring in so many of these disparate pieces. Someone we haven't talked about, by the way, Kwani Kwani. I would throw in there. His shooting percentage in the A-10 is outstanding. Um, And when VCU is getting him open looks on the perimeter, um, then they can be really dangerous offensively. And it's been an inconsistent shooting team, but it's a shooting team with a high ceiling. And Kiwani is a big part of that. Um, So he's been a key contributor and he's gotten better defensively as the year has gone on too. Um, But I, you'll be looking back and, and saying, what if you'd had your pieces available for these games? But I think there will, will still also be some momentum and positivity going into Ryan's second year, because you've clearly seen a lot of growth with this team. They had a ton of moving pieces um, to assimilate with each other. Um, And, and Brian kind of had a blank slate, right. And putting a roster together. And so with going forward, him being able to recruit more naturally, not have to put pieces together in a, in a kind of hurried fashion like he did over the summer. I still think there'll be a lot of belief. I think that he's earned the trust um, to a degree of this fan base after the ups and downs earlier the year, by the consistency consistency that you've seen over these last nine games, and just how this team has figured things out defensively. Right over the weekend, I, I I wrote a piece that um the beginning of the headline was Odom Havoc with a question mark, and and it's not schematically. Dayton turned the ball over eight times. VCU converted that into two points on Friday. Right, this is not at all VCU of old in the Shaka era, and and Will and Mike carried on some aspects of this with creating a bunch of live ball turnovers, playing fast, getting up and down the court, pressing, that's not what this team is. They're a methodical, slower, half-court defensive team, um, but they've been really good in that regard. And so I think that just the fact that they've figured things out on the defensive end has, has earned Ryan a lot of trust and love from the fan base. And so I think even if you get bounced in the A-10 quarters and it's disappointing, there's still momentum and there's still a, a lot of readily available excuses you know, for why this team didn't realize the ceiling that that everyone knew that it had all year um, because that would at this juncture be a surprise, right? I think that it's easy to look at this group and the momentum they have right now and expect them to make noise in Brooklyn. I think that's the expectation around the conference right now. Um, they really do not want to play St. Bonaventure like you alluded to because they've killed them this year. It's a team that's really committed to the offensive glass and that's clearly been a weakness for VCU um, in teams that, that that's a big part of what they do, um, and Bonaventure's got shooters to be able to spread the floor around Benning. It's really a team that I think schematically is is built to give this VCU group issues, and we've obviously seen that in the two times they played them. So they'd really like to avoid Bonaventure um, in that first round if they can. Um, but I suppose what is, is your second question going to be? Everything works out, you know, and they and they make noise in Brooklyn, and 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 what's the positive takeaways um, from a season if they can realize the potential that they have?
0: Yeah, so that's the flip side. And it's more so more so I was going to angle it as, so if Ryan Odom's sitting there in the confetti shower that Mike Rhodes was in last year, what has to go right over these next 10 games? What's the key? Is it a player? Is it a team-specific stat you're looking for? W- what is the story going to be if they can make this run and finish off what has been, uh, honestly, kind of a weird season to this point?
1: It it has been um full of ups and downs, right? And full of a lot of question marks. Um, Max Shulga's got to stay healthy, like you alluded to. Um, he's been the rock for this team all year from an offensive standpoint, especially when they were missing Bamasil and 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 Bearstow. And he's dealing with something in that left shoulder right now. Um, Ryan said the other day that it's you know he's not gonna be listed on the injury report. He's gonna play on Friday, but he took a hard screen in the Fordham game. Um, and was grabbing at that left shoulder and, and Ryan called him over and asked if he was okay. And Max said, I'm fine. And he stayed on and he played great in that game. And I think 13 points, uh, 10 rebounds and seven assists in, in that Fordham game. Um, so he was outstanding and then, but he only had two points against dayton and dayton clearly it looked to me had shulga at the top of their scouting report and said you can't give him any space on the perimeter to shoot because that's vcu's best offensive weapon is whenever shulga can can get into a rhythm um and get space on the perimeter dayton did a great job of taking him away he only had two points in that game um that's obviously a testament to the depth of this team that you can have a guy like jason nelson step up when they shut off the valve on your leading scorer and shulga but shulga's got to stay healthy and find consistency shooting. And then to be able to win the a 10 tournament and, and conceivably win the conference regular season title, um, continue the defensive uh, mindset that they've had in these last nine games, continue momentum on that end of the floor. Um, that's been the bedrock of success in these last nine games is taking more pride on that end of the floor, um, buying into the scheme. I think Ryan said the other day that this is the best team that he's ever had, just in terms of absorbing the scouting report and listening during film sessions. Um, and I think that's that's really borne fruit, like like we talked about in the matchup with Holmes, the matchup with Jimerson, the matchup with King, they've bought into the tendencies that this coaching staff is pointing to and the spots that you've got to keep guys off on the floor to to get them out of the game. And so they've got to continue that defensively. And then I think back to, you know, the VCU heydays where you had that underlying. Bedrock of defensive foundation, but you also had a high ceiling from a shooting standpoint. And in March, right, we see that year in and year out, teams that get hot from outside at, at the right time of the year have success. And so, I think if BCU is is going to do that, is going to win the A10 tournament, is going to get into the NCAA tournament, is going to compete for a conference title down the stretch, then it's Kwani Kwani. Right. It's it's Max Shulga. Um, it's Jason Nelson getting open looks off the bench. It's them finding ways to free up their shooters on the outside and get them and catch and shoot opportunities to to get into a rhythm. Um, I think Kalani missed his first 16 threes on the year early on in the season. And then in a 10 play, he's shooting like a ridiculous like it was up to like 70 percent over those first few games, which is absurd and not sustainable at all. But I, I think he's still over 50 percent. 62 from three- and a half yeah in in a 10 play which is a ridiculous number um and he's not a guy that's ever going to create off the dribble right like he is a pure like stand on the wing like the 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 guard draws help from his defender and then kicks to Kwani and and he's open for a three and can shoot in rhythm and so getting those guys open looks and finding consistency from outside and they can continue the defensive momentum and get those shooters in their spots and Joe Bamisil as well should should obviously be thrown in there. He loves the corner. Um, when VCU can get him open corner looks um from three, then he's really dangerous. And the top of the key, those are kind of his spots. So that you can get your shooters in their spots, get them open looks and continue the defensive momentum. Then I think the sky's the limit. I think there's a reason this team is receiving top 25 votes right now, despite some of the losses that they've suffered. I think it's because people see, wow, that this team finally is at full strength and has all of its pieces available. And it's getting comfortable with the roles for those pieces. And I think they see that there's a top 25 ceiling. Um, you know, if, if this team can continue that defensive foundation and find some consistency from the outside, then they're going to be really hard to beat.
0: Yeah. They are playing up to their talent now, fully healthy. The rotation is figured out eight and three in the conference, but three and O oh against the three teams sitting above them in the standings. VCU is cooking right now but before I let you go Zach I got to close this out you're you're following the team around this year getting to see all of these wonderful A10 venues including the historic Rose Hill Gym <laughs> so please tell everyone about your experience there because I Rose think you is- came out of there with a with a not with an uncommon opinion
1: Oh, place. it's my it, it's my favorite away venue that I've been to, and I haven't been to all of them in the A10 by by any stretch of the imagination yet. Um, but the Stone Walls, I mean, it feels like an old church that someone just smacked a basketball arena into, and I love that. It is cacophonous. Oh my gosh, I mean, there. I think they listed the attendance at like sixteen hundred for that game. I don't know if there were a thousand people there, but 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 it was loud, and and sound reverberates in there. There's also a, a place called Dagger Johns which I was really fascinated by. That's like, apparently there's like a, a tunnel that you go down. Um, I didn't go to it, but the the um, the Fordham writer that was there told me about it and I'd heard legends of it. And it's like a little bar that's in the bottom of Rose Hill called Dagger John's that I thought was the coolest thing ever. It's like kind of hidden. Like you have to know like a, a passage down under the arena to go through to get to it. I thought that was cool as heck. I love New York to death. And so that was just like, I, that trip was awesome and taking the subway up to the Bronx and, and, you know, walking through the Bronx to, to get up to Fordham was just a a very cool experience. Um, And I love the vibes. I mean, you can feel the history in the building. It's obviously incredibly old. Um, I I love Gothic architecture, you know, and so that just the kind of like old church feel of the building really appealed to me. And they've done a ton in recent years, I believe to renovate too. I mean, it's, it, it, you can tell that they've done a lot to improve the infrastructure, um, so it feels like it has some kind of new modern arena amenities in the middle of this really old building. And so I, I absolutely loved it. That's my favorite away venue that I've been to so far. Um, and tip of the cap to to Fordham because they do a great job up there. And and obviously less of, a, the, of an exciting season this year than it was for them last year. But they were telling me when I was up there, man, when this team had momentum and they were playing good basketball last season, um, then this place was loud. And I also think from a VCU standpoint, you have a heightened respect for a team that that lives on live ball turnovers and wants to get up and down the floor right and 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 Fordham creates some havoc you know in the style of basketball that they play there's kind of a callback to those to those vcu heydays and so I think there's a heightened respect for the program from that standpoint um and I absolutely love my time up there
0: yeah and you have now thrown into legend a third different a10 venue <laughs> with something hiding under the court and the first one that's not a swimming pool so We'll see what gets found first, the entrance to Dagger John's
1: or pictures of either the LaSalle or GW pool. I haven't been to Foggy Bottom yet. I'm excited to hopefully to, to make that trip before long here. VCU obviously doesn't have a, a game there this year, but I've wanted to go there. Do they have a pool under the arena too?
0: We So we found out when we were there actually walking to the media room last year, there was just a big sign on one of the doors that said pool with an arrow on it. <laughs> So we still haven't seen it, but that's enough for us to believe that it does exist down there.
1: I have a great story. I have a friend, uh, Dion Dean, who I went to high school with, who swam at George Mason. And so they, he's, when I uh, posted pictures of the pool under Tom Gola Arena, he was like, hey, I've, I've swam there before. I've competed there before. And he said their coach took them to Golden Corral on, the, on a Saturday morning before, <laughs> before one of their meets. And um, suffice to say, he was having some stomach issues while having to compete uh in the, in the pool under LaSalle. And so I thought that was a pretty funny story, but it was awesome to go down there. After that game, I was it makes all the sense in the world that they call it the attic because I was I was shocked to, to have to walk up two flights of stairs to get to the arena at Tongola. It's obviously a really old place, but I enjoyed the vibes there as well. I love the, you know, the novelty of some of the older storied arenas that you get to go to. Um, in the A10, obviously there's a lot of modern amenities that that those programs would like to have and I think they're talking about renovating Tomgola or is like LaSalle building a new arena or something like that they, they need it, but but I enjoyed you know the the history. It, it felt like a big high school gym, you know and, and I've covered high school sports in the Richmond area for five years now before I took on the BCUB. And so I have love for for those old um, venues that that have some history to them. Um And that there's maybe not a whole lot of space to stand on the sidelines. Um, I love those places. And so it was super cool to be able to get to go to both, uh, to both Fordham and LaSalle this year. Yeah. And you got to
0: see one of the final games of Tom goal arena before that big renovation coming at the end of the season. So a, a chance to really see the smoke machine in action, <laughs> the, the old bleachers, everything, but Zach Joaquin, thank you for joining me to talk VCU here. I, it all, all that is running through my head right now to say, I want to quote George T- Templeton and say that we believe in shameless self-promotion here,
1: but Zach, where can everyone find your great work? Tyler, thank you so much for that, man. George is the best. Um, Richmond.com um, and, and just search my name. And that's where all my VCU coverage is at. Favorite story that I've done this year um, I, on VCU, I think was on Max Shulga, Um, And uh, he has family back in Ukraine. Obviously, hasn't been home in a few years. Um, and about the balance of 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 trying to play college basketball and and focus on the task at hand while your family is living in a war zone. Um, and Max talked about he grew up in Kiev. Um, having you know YouTube videos of people driving through the city that he watches just so he can feel like he's home again. And he talked about having not found any good Ukrainian food in the states between Logan, Utah, where he was with Utah State, and in Richmond. And I did that story, and then I, I guess the right person read it, and they linked Max up with the Jewish Community Center of Richmond, where there's some people uh, with Ukrainian descent, and so they made him some good borscht and vareniki, which are the two Ukrainian foods that he loves. And so that's my favorite story that I've done all year, um, works at Richmond.com. Tyler, thank you so much, man.
0: Yeah, and I, had a, I actually had a chance to talk with Max right before the season. We talked about the Ukrainian part pretty briefly at probably only about three minutes, but he spent most of that time talking about his love of borscht. So it was great to see him get to have some in the U.S. because he did uh, he did go over about how much he missed eating it. So everyone, be sure to go, go read Zach's story on Max. Be sure to go read all the stories he's got coming on VCU this year. Some more great coverage to come. And it really helps that we're going to be able to read it for one of the best teams in this league. Zach, thank you again for joining me.
1: Tyler, thank you so much for having me on, man.
0: All right, before I close out this episode, I teased an idea during the mailbag segment from earlier this week, and be sure to go back and listen to that episode if you did not already. But a way that the A-10 can start to capture more of the college basketball television audience. Obviously, they've already done a great job setting up the Friday 10 every single Friday night, normally at 7 o'clock, sometimes a little later, over on ESPN2. Great announcing pair of Corey and Cuff every week. And it's a signature event. Now, granted, it's not quite the same as it was a few years ago, where it was that at 7, followed by either the Horizon League or the MAC at 9. And then maybe you had some kind of crappy Metro game over on ESPNU at the same time. Now we always at least have a mediocre Big Ten game. The Mountain West tends to be involved on Friday nights as well, but that's always later in the night. And it's a little bit more crowded, but no matter what, the A-10 still kind of owns a little bit of that space. And you still end up with situations like last Friday where Dayton and VCU were playing at 7 o'clock, and for, I believe, an hour and a half, it was the only college basketball game on television. And at no point was it taking any attention away from anything besides the first half of San Diego State Nevada. It owned that time slot. So now they need to find a way to try to carry the momentum into Saturday, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do with just a, a completely overloaded college basketball schedule at this point. But it takes me back to something that Matt mentioned after Thanksgiving. When we had VCU play Penn State in their MTE at 1030 in the morning on, I believe it was Sunday morning. It might've been Saturday, but a 1030 AM game, super early if you're on the West Coast. Does anybody really care about watching eight-ten basketball on the West Coast? probably not more than a few handful. No one plays before noon. It's that game once a year, and then on conference tournament week, you have the Saturday morning America East championship game at 11, along with, I think there might be an Ivy League semi around that time. Other than that day, who else plays early? Well, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of that week, The A-10 starts their tournament at 11.30. They're clearly seeing that there is some sort of inherent value into slipping into this dead time. Well, they should just go ahead and do it every single Saturday. And maybe you have to slide it over to CBSSN to get it done. They love doing like seven games in a row in one day. Maybe they'd be willing to do so and accommodate it. But I think you go to your standard partner of NBC here and you can't do it on USA because, well, 3 p.m. on Saturday British Standard Time, 10 a.m. here is the Premier League equivalent of 1 p.m. on Sunday for the NFL. Absolutely overloaded with games. And by the time those are done and they do the Premier League post game show leading into their primetime game over on NBC, That's why we have the USA games always kicking off at 12.30 rather than at 12 o'clock. CNBC's got nothing going on. They just run infomercials and old reruns of Shark Tank all weekend. They literally have no real programming from the moment the market closes on Friday night and Kramer's show is over until the Monday morning prep. So why not slide it over to CNBC? Just play one game over there and then you flip to USA. It's not like you have to have it continuous. People know how to use their remote, but you gotta go grab that little bit of time where the college basketball world, and quite frankly, the whole sporting world in general has nothing. There's nothing happening in the sports world at 11 AM Eastern, but everybody's awake. And so many people are fiending for something to watch while they're drinking their coffee or lining up their morning betting card. So take it over, take the 11 o'clock game. But then you got to find a way to suck people in. And that's where there's an opportunity for a a pregame show that really exists nowhere in the sporting world. Certainly does not exist in the college basketball world. For some people, you may remember the show NFL Matchup. So on Sunday mornings at like the crack of dawn, hidden away on ESPN2, Ron Jaworski, Merrill Hodge, just sat at the TV screen, fired up the film, and really just talked to the fans on an incredibly intelligent level. And you learned something out of it. You came out of that show feeling smarter. We don't get that with pregame, halftime, postgame shows anymore. It's just four people sitting at a table and they get 45 seconds to talk. And quite frankly, it's just flat out useless. Why not do that for the A-10? And it's a tough, tough thing because you have to find the right people to do it. But I think a lot of former coaches would be good doing the show that I'm about to describe. For sake of the example, Let's say that Matt McCall, because he would actually be perfect for this. Let's say that he chooses not to go back to the bench next year and he remains in the media. You give this show to him ten forty-five AM every single Saturday. You give it some catchy name. We call it eight minutes with McCall. I want that coach in front of a video screen, not trying to communicate to the audience, But just breaking down those day's games as if he's talking to a bunch of veteran assistant coaches, the highest, highest level he can. We all know Fordham's defense is funky. But why? Those are the kind of things that even the best broadcasters don't have the time to get into during a game. Because it takes six, seven, eight minutes. You can't fire it out in 30 seconds during a dead ball. So if we did this this weekend, they're playing Dayton. That could have been the CNBC game. And we have Matt McCall sit there, break down three or four different clips of Fordham's defense. And then we get to go into, well, how can Dayton counter this? Does Anthony Grant have the proper players on the wing to go against what Fordham does on the perimeter? How, did, how would he have to adjust his strategy for that game to be able to properly set things up. We don't get that kind of discussion anywhere. Just take that time slot. College, ba- real college basketball fans would love it. You're waiting till noon. You got nothing on 10:45 every Saturday morning. They should be flipping over to CNBC. You get this great eight minute pregame show, quick commercial break, And then you go to another A team of announcers. We'll keep the example of this weekend. You come back from the commercial, you got five minutes to show the flashing pregame light show at UD arena. And then we go to the desk, Matt Martucci, Dr. John Giannini to give us their keys from the game. And then you actually tip at 11 o'clock, which USA never does, but it's critical. In this situation. Because then you hit your halftime somewhere around 11.45 and the second half starts around noon, which you have to have. Why does this have to be 11 o'clock? Why can't it be 11.30? Because if you hit halftime after those noon games start, every single person is flipping away from that channel. But if you put it in that no man's land, now all of a sudden they might be satisfied to just sit there and scroll Twitter while the bell and how tack infomercials on and then watch the halftime show. But if you let them escape over to ESPN or CBS or whatever game is on, those people might not come back. You want to own that hour ten forty-five to noon is your slot. And then hopefully you keep those people into the second half. It's a tough hill. You got to, you got to get buy-in from the right TV network. And the biggest thing with this, you have to nail both of the hirings for the pregame show. You need a coach who is truly brilliant to be able to break this down and uh, most retired head coaches or coaches who are taking a sabbatical are going to be able to do that because you're not asking them to try to communicate this. You just need them to sit there and just break down the film and then not quite as important, but still, still critical. You can't just have any random TV host with that person because you need someone who can properly be the connector between this brilliant coach speak, being able to take what they're talking about it and simplifying it down for that 20 year old guy sitting on his couch hungover trying to figure out whether or not he wants to bet this game. It's not a normal studio host gig where you're kind of just passively playing no shot point guard. Okay. You say this. Okay. Here's a question for you. You almost need someone who's more so comfortable in an interview format as opposed to someone, Who's more so trained being in front of the TV camera? But if you get those two spots right, you have a chance to make a great show that's not only gonna attract fans of that game, not only going to attract people who wanna watch A10 basketball, but the hardcore college basketball fan community is fiending for an early game. Give them a reason to, f- to turn it on before the game, give them a chance to learn something. And as the gambling community grows as well, give those people something that they'll be interested in. A whole bunch of random people are gonna wanna go watch this show because they'll come out of it feeling like now they have some sort of edge to go bet that game. Nobody's doing this. You wanna stand out in college basketball, you have to go do stuff that no one is doing. And so hopefully next year we get some early games, And I would love to see NBC or even if CBS takes this on, try to innovate something in the pregame show market because what's happening right now is the same with everybody. And quite frankly, it's not really that effective, but that's it. Hope you guys liked my idea. really hope you enjoyed listening to Zach Joaquin. Be sure to go follow his work. Give them a follow on Twitter. Go read them at the Richmond Times Dispatch. And be sure to come back. We will be back next week with even more A-10 basketball to talk about.